And welcome in to another episode of Turning the Corner, a Detroit Tigers podcast. I am Kieran Steckley. With me, as always, taking a little bit of time away from his typewriter, Cody Stavenhagen, who's been churning out stories this week. Cody, how you doing, man? Hey, I'm doing all right. Yeah, I've been cranking out some stories this week. I wish I had an old-fashioned typewriter. I've always thought they were awesome. Uh, at the end of the day, I guess Google Docs on, on my MacBook is an easier system. But uh, yeah, I wish I were born like 50 years ago and, and uh, could be working on a typewriter. I think it'd be cool. I always did find it fascinating, those old baseball movies where they had the typewriter in the press box and they're smoking the cigar. And I was like, man, what an interesting world that must have been. It was a different time, a different world, a, a very different job. They definitely weren't on Twitter during games, I can tell you that. No, they were not. So I, I actually wanted to start this podcast with a non-baseball-related rant because it could be relevant for this pod. So we're recording this. As people know, I have uh, two dogs, like a half-Great Dane and a German Shepherd. Those two dogs are good in size and very capable of being loud so it's possible and it has happened before that you would hear their barking in the background while we're recording no big deal you have a dog as well it's not a big deal um but my next door neighbor got a new next door neighbor recently and they have two dogs a chihuahua and a mini aussie and they let the dogs roam around outside their yard which I kind of find annoying because, A, that's kind of dangerous for the animal, animal lover. It's kind of dangerous for the animal. And, B, when they run around my house, it gets my dogs all riled up. And, you know, one of them's a rescue, so he gets really, like, anxious and stressed, like, easily. So it makes my day a lot more difficult when this happens. And I saw... Uh, this particular couple, they're like a, you know, forties, fifties couple. They have a, a grown, uh, grown adult son who uh, doesn't live in the house, but they were all out at a restaurant. They were out sitting outside. This is on Saturday night. They were sitting outside. Then they decided it was too hot, so they wanted to come in. They had their mini Aussie with them, and I heard them tell the hostess, "Hey, is it okay if we bring our service animal inside?" Now, I have witnessed this dog in action. This dog is no service animal. I'm pretty sure it's not even grown, number one. Number two, this dog couldn't even navigate walking through, like, two people to get inside the restaurant. It hit itself on the door. So, this notion of, like, every dog's a service dog, I'm not detracting about people who have emotional support animals and they need them. But I am detracting about obvious fakes because I have background information. This was an obvious fake. It was just an excuse to bring a dog in a restaurant. And I kind of think it's kind of slimy. So if you hear my dog's barking, it's probably because there's somebody else's dog running around the outside of our house, which means they'll probably use the bathroom on our lawn. And some people just think it's hunky-dory. And it's also one of those things where how do you approach that? without coming across as an a-hole because you know me Cody I kind of have two speeds where I am kind of passive or just like really 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 peak 
northeastern roots Italian a-hole. I always try to stay in the first lane, but the second lane comes out, and I, I try to avoid it, but it's only been about a month, and I can guarantee you they're getting on my nerves a little bit. So that's my that's my random rant. If you hear a dog bark in the background, it's because our neighbors are just letting their dogs roam free, which I find irritating. And by the way, it's not an anti-dog rant. As, you, as I've said, I'm a dog lover. My fiance is a veterinarian. We love animals. But we also hate irresponsible owners. And that's obviously, if you're a veterinarian, that'd be the number one pet peeve you have, right, is an irresponsible owner. And we have those next door. They're, by the way, this dog's not even spayed. And we have another neighbor who has a male dog who's intact. And things could get ugly really quickly if certain events uh, were to align. So that's that's the end of my rant, Cody. Thank you for bearing with me on that. Every now and then this podcast can be therapeutic for both of us. Here's what I'm hoping. I'm hoping somehow your neighbor catches wind of this podcast and brings his tiny dog over to your house, rings the doorbell and says, why don't you say it to my face? That's what I'm going for. You know, I would respect that so much. I would probably say, hey, dude, I I will buy your dog a year's worth of bark boxes if you listened to the pod and gave us a five star review and felt the need to come say say it to my face. I would be I would actually that would actually elate me a lot. So so okay. End of rant. Uh, this week, Cody, we had the um, eleven year anniversary of Armando Galarraga's near perfect perfect game. And we were sort of robbed of, with the pandemic last year, we were robbed of like having baseball going on uh, during the 10-year anniversary, which is obviously like, you know, 10 years always the more significant anniversary for anything. Uh, but we, we talked about it a little bit last week. Uh, you went really in-depth. You visited with Galarraga. You talked to Jim Joyce uh, during spring training last year, right before basically the pandemic canceled everything we know you had tacos and we know you had barbecue what else stands out about that trip yeah it was definitely one of the better reporting experiences of my whole career uh, one thing that stands out I did CrossFit with Armando Galarraga and though I like to think I stay in pretty good shape and work out I do not do CrossFit and let me tell you CrossFit right after eating breakfast tacos kicked my butt pretty close to vomiting and I was like this is going to be highly embarrassing um but luckily I somewhat made it through he probably lost a little respect for me but you know I don't know <laughs> it was that was fun I think it was just interesting to see Armando who really was a nice uh kind genuine human being kind of drove me all around Austin like I said we we had dinner you know I hung out with him at his house we had some some very good talks uh, most of it on the record you know a little bit just kind of talking about his experience um, playing baseball and hearing him tell stories about old teammates and stuff like that. I watched him um, give pit pitching lessons to kids, and I know he's highly respected out there, but I think he also has a deep-seated desire to um, to be liked, to please people, to make people happy. So it's, it's worth bringing up. Like One of my most memorable, the thing I'll still remember about that story, Armando and I talked at length about how he would like for Major League Baseball to recognize him, uh, you know, with a perfect game. I think we spent at least like six minutes on the record where he talks about it even more than he's uh, he's quoted 
in the story. I actually did a separate uh, Tiger's Talk column that includes a little bit more if anyone out there is curious. So anyway, he was he was very adamant, you know. He, he said it was perfect, right? I did it. And uh, I, I tended to agree with him, you know. And that made the story. And then, of course, because we live in the modern media climate, we do. The quote kind of made the rounds on Twitter. They talked about it on uh, Pardon the Interruption and kind of became a big deal. And the Venezuelan media got a hold of it and uh, where there's a little bit of a different culture. And, you know, I think tried to frame it a little more as oh, Armando was being ungrateful, which he wasn't. He was not angry. He was not writing a letter to the commissioner. It was very simple saying, yeah, I threw, I, I threw a perfect game. I think they should recognize it. Who wouldn't know? think that? If, yeah. You know? And, and he, he brought this up unprompted, by the way, I didn't even ask it. He was thinking there's, there's something I want to share. And, uh, so he shared it. And then I think the blowback, especially from the Venezuelan media was, was not great. So when Armando did some subsequent interviews um, around the 10th anniversary with uh, some local outlets, MLB.com, the Detroit Free Press, he kind of recounted it and, uh, you know, said that's, well, that's, I think first he said he didn't say it, and then he said that's not what I meant. Um, and so I was a little conflicted saying, are, like, you know, are, are you trying to make me look bad? Are you trying to say I misquoted you? <laughs> Uh, so I called her Armando and, and we talked about it and he explained that, you know, there were some people in Venezuela that weren't, weren't happy and he was trying to do some, some damage control a little bit. And I was like, okay, well, well you said it, like, I'll send you the recording just so you know what you said. He's like, yeah, I know, I know, uh, I know what I said. Um, and, uh, like I'll make clear it's not your fault, but he was kind of backing off that statement. And to be honest, uh, I feel bad for him that he felt the need to back off that statement because I don't think it's how he really yes. feels. You know, I think he was yes. just trying to be liked to please people. Uh, he told people, he told people he still has that Corvette. He doesn't still have the Corvette. I've been in his garage. You know, so those are some of the things with uh, with Armando that are interesting to kind of think about a year later. But overall, it was, I really liked the guy, and uh, and you know, talking to Jim Joyce was maybe just as rewarding. I didn't get to see him in person, but I, I kind of cold called him and, uh, you know, I, I was very nervous to call him for that interview. I'd never met the guy. I, I knew he had a good reputation, but it's like, how's he going to feel about this 10 years later? I had no idea. I or to talk about it again. Yeah. Yeah. I felt kind of bad calling him. Well, you know, I, I called, tracked down a number, called, he didn't answer. I got a call like several hours later and it's like, hello, this is Jim Joyce. I'm calling you back. I uh, don't check my phone until the afternoon most of the time, you know, and he told me about this glorious life he has in retirement where he doesn't have to check his phone and jealous. He's, so he's, he's, yeah, he's, he still thinks about the call pretty much every day, but he's also kind of really at peace with it, um, especially in his post baseball career where, you know, he said, you'd be surprised how many people have no idea about that game or that call or what happened, which is important to remember in our world. That's a huge, you know, seminal baseball moment that we all remember to the average person who's not a huge baseball fan. You know, they have no idea what it's talking about. So I think Jim Joyce has find, found a way to make, make peace with that call. Um, although he did reiterate that he thinks Armando Galarraga should uh, be credited with a perfect game, which he somewhat lobbied for at the time. The commissioner's office uh, didn't entertain that too much, but but he still feels that way 10 years later as well. There's a couple things with, uh, with this story that I kind of want to rehash. Number one, being that it was uh, 
you know, over a decade ago, digitally, I mean, we live in such a different world. And it did make its rounds then, but, God, could you imagine? Yeah. At the, if that, I mean, take out the instant replay part of it, but, like, if there was no instant replay in baseball, like, with the current social media Twitter climate we have now, you imagine what was go through. But I was on the internet, I was in high school at the time, and I was just kind of reading about the story, and I somehow came across... Uh, a Wikipedia page for him. Now, I have no idea if this had already been created because he had been an umpire for so long, it's entirely possible, or if someone literally created one for him after this. I have no idea. But it described him in a very derogatory way. Um, it described him as a um, F word and then um, religious person who reads the Torah. And that's, you know... F word, religious person who reads the Torah, in a derogatory sense, obviously. And that was sort of my first experience with poisonous internet culture. So a lot of Tigers fans are going to, and I will too, will remember that game for Galarraga, for Miguel Cabrera putting his hands on his head, and uh, Jim Leland going out, and, and the whole, like, it looks like he's about to do an out sign, and then he and then he does the the safe sign. Uh, you know, we've all watched that video a million times, so we'll all remember that part. And then the the next day, with sort of like the as I call the beauty of baseball, the beauty of sports, and and the sportsmanship aspect of it, I thought that was a great moment too. But I'm also gonna remember like that was the internet poison that festered for a while and like I said that was sort of my first experience with it and we talk about how much the world has changed uh that part of our culture certainly hasn't gotten better so I'll uh, I'll always remember that part too and you know like I'm glad he has such a good outlook on it because I really do feel for the Jim Joyce's, the the Bill Buckner's, the Steve Barkman's, uh, Jim Marshall. Jim Marshall should be a, a you know, old football take right here. Jim Marshall should be in the Hall of Fame as a defensive end. He was a member of the Purple People Eaters. Uh, he might not have been defensive defensive lineman. Maybe he wasn't an end. I, I don't claim to know all that much. Uh, but he had like the record for consecutive games played, I believe, until Brett Favre uh, broke it as a defensive lineman in the seventies. Like, that's crazy. and But because he picked up a fumble and ran it the wrong way, it's like, he put it on a, on a show one time. Imagine your worst day at work, and that's the only thing people remember you for. When you put it like that, the worst moment of your life, when you put it like that, it's kind of messed up. And I admire people like Joyce. I admire people like Marshall. I admire people uh, like Bill Buckner, who can face the music and still live like mentally healthy lives and I don't blame people like Steve Barkman for just going I wish he would come out and like we as a culture Chicago fans can sort of like embrace him and tie a nice bow on it but I don't blame him for just staying in the shadows like at all um so I admire Joyce for his attitude all these years later and and on the issue on on the issue of whether it should be a perfect game, I want to say yes, give it a perfect game. But I just there's something that tells me 
I just don't know if if that if that's a good road to go down. Uh, it'd be impossible to credit people for being wronged in the history of baseball. Uh, uh, and it kind of reminds me of like the Oklahoma State Central Michigan game. Uh, any Central Michigan fans, shout out to y'all if you, if you listen to this podcast. But uh, the year after I graduated, or two years after I graduated, I should I should say Central Michigan came to Oklahoma State, uh, one of the first games of the year, if not the first game, and uh, had a hail mary touchdown to win the game. The problem was a penalty was called where it shouldn't have been called. And Central Michigan got a free play where they shouldn't have. So the game should have been over. It's, it's basically the football parallel of, of the Galarraga play. The game should have been over. They just misapplied the rule. Like, they just misinterpreted the rule. The referees did. And But Central Michigan got the win. Oklahoma State got the loss. And even then, I remember thinking, like, I just don't, I just don't know if you can really go back. I'm not really in the interest of going back and changing things. But I could be moved off that because I, as I've said many times, I don't like to be rigid for the sake of being rigid, but I just don't know where that line is. And somewhat, like, what good does it do? Like, I understand he would get, like, the record book application, but we all also know that he threw a perfect game, whether it, whether... He officially gets credit for it or not, and again, I don't blame him for saying like, "Hey, I, I, I had a perfect game. I actually had a perfect game, and if you had the career he had, and that would have been your one shining moment, like I don't begrudge him like that at all, and I don't disagree. Honestly, I just, I, I just don't know if you can really go back and do that, and especially, especially if they didn't do it at the time." to go back and do it more than 10 years later or whatever. Like, you know, I, I get the emotion. I don't disagree with, with the point. I just don't know if I come down on that side. Yeah, I think it would have to be a very narrow kind of one-time exception that you could almost make only because of what happened after he quickly recorded the 28th out. You would strike that from the record book, act like it never happened. Jason Donald would lose like, you know, one or two tenths of a point on his lifetime batting average, which I have a feeling he'd be okay with. Um, but you, you know, I, I talked yesterday, like, well, if I were an attorney or a judge, like I would really want to hear to judicial precedent. There's really no precedent for anything like this in baseball. And I would, you, you would almost have to do it like without setting a precedent. Jim Leland still, well, wait, 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 maybe, maybe I can disagree with myself and I could convince myself of something different. Oh, sure. You said there's no, there's no precedent. There. Let me let me ask you this: Could this be considered precedent? Ty Cobb had his batting average and total number of hits deducted when Pete Rose was going for those record for the for the hits record because they went they went all the way back to like some newspaper box scores and saw that like it was something like like a couple a couple series had been counted mm-hmm. twice for his hit total or something like that and it reduced him. I, I wish. I literally just came up with this live. This is not a prepared bit. Like, so I don't know the exact number, but his batting average went down a point, and then, you know, however many number of hits were reduced. So that's why sometimes, depending on where you look, like, they might have the original number, and then and then the adjusted numbers on some other sites. 
is that precedent? Could that could we argue that as precedent? No, it's changing the record books, and I think similar like record keeping um, changes have happened. There's not necessarily a precedent for overturning a call that I'm aware of, and people bring to mind, you know, That's uh, fair. the Royals World Series in the '80s, and mm-hmm. and um, you know, plenty of other things like that. And it would it would be a very unique thing. One of the things that gets compared to is Harvey Haddix, who completed. You know, nine innings perfect, ended up, I think, losing a game in, in extra innings. And for a long time, he was credited with having thrown a perfect game, even though he uh, he lost and allowed base runners and I, I think even a hit in extras. But because he completed nine innings perfect, you know, he was credited with the perfect game. Well, MLB changed the official ruling to say you must complete the game of nine innings or more perfect. So the seven innings don't count. Uh, and, and a Sports Illustrated reporter called Harvey Haddix and said, how do you feel about the fact that you no longer ever threw a perfect game? And he said, it's okay. I know what I did. You know, so. Um, nice yeah, perspective. You know, and I think it applies a lot to the Galarraga case. There's no easy answer. Jim Leland uh, is, is does not think it should be counted as a perfect game because of the arguments you laid out. It would kind of open up Pandora's box. And then you could probably be like, well, what about this? Well, what about this? Well, what about this? Um, so it's definitely, I think a unique case, I think because it's such a unique case, you could almost make a one-time thing and say, we are going to credit Armando Galarraga with a perfect game. Um, that doesn't mean we can start changing all kinds of stuff, but because of the unique way this happened, because of what happened after it in the game, you could do it very easy and, uh, wouldn't, wouldn't have to get too messy. What if we just went and gave Cabrera an E3? uh just just i would hand out a lot of errors to a lot of people (laughs) (laughs) the ball is hit right at you and you don't feel it cleanly and recording out i'm giving you an error i'm all for all those changes people don't people know uh when cody first started covering major league baseball he told me nothing's an error anymore dude (laughs) it's gotten even worse since like nothing is an error we've seen a lot of recent examples with the tigers nothing is an error it's insane yeah, that's true. All right, so uh, go from a story that's 14 months old, 15 months old that you wrote, <laughs> to one that's freshly published, a couple that are freshly published this week. Uh, you wrote about a really popular topic and a stable, somewhat under-the-radar topic this week and Chris Fetter and the job he's done with the pitching staff and then Robbie Grossman and sort of why he's here, the growth he's had as a player, and the connection that he has with A.J. Hinch. Uh, the pitching stuff's great. The Fetter, you could obviously see people are buying in. The, the Basically, every pitcher has kind of given him credit for something, and the reclamation projects are impressive with Joe Jimenez, Bunkhauser, and then the... the, the uh, the incline. Colin does the Milwaukee series. Yeah, the incline with the young guys and Scooble and uh, and Mize and the st- stability of a of a Matthew Boyd and obviously Spencer Turnbull with the no hitter and, and just pitching well otherwise as well. But I'll tell you what, I really like this move that they made to bring in Robbie Grossman. And we talked about it before the season, and it's been everything imagined. I I think I wrote down perfect signing question mark because it's a it's a it's a multi year deal, so there's some stability there. 
uh, but also flexibility. You know, as we approach the trade deadline, that's going to be a topic. He's a consummate professional on a team with either guys that are really young or even if they're not too much younger than him, don't have the major league savvy that he does. So it's highly valuable. He's a switch hitter. I've been impressed with his defense. He's, he's, he's been a gold glove finalist before. He was terrible early in his career, and he worked really hard to improve it, and now he's now he's pretty solid. Yeah, And he's cheap, which... You know, it's important now. Hopefully it's not important uh, in the future, but it's important now. He's leading off. He's uh, got some of the best at-bats that you'll see. He works the count really well. He finds his pitch. He had a walk-off home run not too long ago. Uh, I just think this is like the ultimate signing, and a signing that sort of is a sign of a team having good pro scouting, having good uh, contract negotiators, and identifying a specific type of person that's going to help your team in a specific type of way. And it's not as sexy as, you know, signing Correa or Story or something in the offseason. But the Grossman signing is what good teams do. And if the Tigers are going to become a good team, they're going to need more Robbie Grossman type players and type signings. Yeah, I think that's very much what I wrote at the time of the signing. Like, this could be the type of shrewd move the Tigers need more of in the Avila era. I think Grossman is here largely because of A.J. Hinch, who managed him with the 15 Astros, who always loved his profile. I think Hinch encouraged the front office to pursue Grossman. Grossman was interested in being a Tiger largely because of Hinch. Uh, so that's detailed a little more in, in the story I wrote. But... Yeah, you, you want to talk about a perfect signing, like this guy's getting five mil a year, you know, for two years and the figures have deviated, but he's going to be worth, I, I could see he's already worth, I think, 0 0.9 um, war. This guy could end up being about a three war player, if not higher. He will exceed a $5 million value uh, on that contract pretty easily this year if he continues at this pace, this guy's He's actually been in a little bit of a slump recently, but he still posts good ABs, so his OBP is over 360. I wouldn't be shocked if he finishes higher. We've seen the pop. I, could, I wouldn't be shocked if he gets on a little more of a power surge. Um, he's, he's provided you good, reliable, consistent at-bats in the leadoff spot, something this team badly, badly needed. And again, I, I guess because we grade everything on a curve still in Tiger's land, it's not like this guy's a superstar. It's not like he's a Hall of Famer. He's a really good baseball player, and right, if you can get, you know, three years from now, a team with a couple of stars and a bunch of really good baseball players, uh, that's how you're going to be competitive. That's how you're going to make a playoff run. And I hope this isn't interpreted as a huge dig, but does he sign with the Tigers if Ra if Gardenhire is the manager? I mean, and I yeah, tough, to, tough say. to say. I mean, I just. The reason I asked that question is I want to get to the legitimacy that A.J. Hinch brings to this franchise. And obviously no one's, like, doubting the hire or anything. But that's why that's why Al, like, texted him and said, I'm getting you on a plane to Detroit. Like, that's, like, there's a level of legitimacy that comes with A.J. Hinch, just his presence. And then you throw in his... Uh, the way he can manage players and manage lineups and, you know, 
and everything that goes into that job, hire a staff. Uh, these are the things that that I really liked. If I'm a if I'm holding my breath for year seven, eight, whatever of this rebuild, that's an early return on um, uh, on a key organizational decision to go with AJ Hinch. And we haven't talked about this in a while because it hasn't become a talking point. And I'm not trying to bring it back up, but when I read your story, it did pop back into my head the whole rumor about like the opt out for AJ Hinch's contract, uh, which you know. For the record, no reporting here from me, obviously, and, and Cody's not going to. Uh, just want to make that clear for the aggregators. Uh, but <laughs> I, AJ hasn't really like quoted this pat podcast to us to me since the last time we talked about that. So we're gonna we're gonna leave that uh, that topic alone. I think it got him to stop well. I, I was I was just I was just gonna say that that's why he is invested in the team is that he's bringing in guys that he likes and he's seeing guys develop and he's seeing what, um, what a Robbie Grossman can do for a franchise that has hit low, nothing but lows basically recently. So, uh, that, that came into my head as I read your story, your other, uh, story about, uh, the long, you talked about AJ Hinch having a, you know, long-term relationship with, uh, Robbie Grossman and really liking him, as a young man and seeing him mature and all that stuff as a player, uh, more or less same thing applies with uh, Chris Fetter. Had a long, long time relationship. Uh, it's been well documented by you and others that that was you know a one A or one B or whatever for what AJ Hinch wanted to do was get Fetter to uh, to be his pitching coach and. Start out with COVID right as the season started, and you know we know how April was with pitching, but we're starting to see the dividends with Chris Fetter. Uh, the pitching coach is the more popular topic, so we can spend some time on it. Uh, you you can't talk to him because no assistants are talking, but you've we've read the quotes of pitchers talking about Fetter. You see them talk about Fetter. Does does they do they like? Does, does, can you tell with body language that they're like really happy to have this guy guiding them? Yeah, most of them. That's that's definitely the case. And I think the young guys, um, I think Scooble and Mize especially, uh, really seem to like Fetter and rave about him. Michael Fulmer's been, um, you know, one of those guys who really raves about him. So I think you can see the differences. Yeah, and the numbers between April and May, I think some of the differences are more subtle than. Uh, then even someone who studies the game pretty closely like we do might pick up one. A lot of it's some some very you know, intricate, inside, subtle differences that Chris Fetter has tweaked that, that goes beyond even you know, just how much are you using your slider, but when are you using the slider? Who are you using it against? Where are you locating it? I mean, I think there's just a lot more information going into every single pitch and every single decision. Um, that's being made and then some of it is still very very casual stuff like telling Casey Mize hey like move to the middle of the rubber you know something any old school pitching coach could tell you something uh, their dad's probably out you know on little league fields that could tell you but there's still something to those astute little observations and it, it's it's clear that Chris Fetter can uh, can still make those kinds of tweaks and, and if you want proof you know look at the numbers and I think that's one thing there wasn't you know, pitching, player development, it's not always instant gratification. I think Chris Fetter and the pitching staff started working on a lot of these changes in the spring 
and they didn't all take shape right away because if you want a guy to uh, to alter his arsenal or if you want a guy to tweak his mechanics it's going to take him a little bit a little bit to get comfortable with that and so that's why you see 508 team ERA in April uh 3.66 team ERA toward the end of May pretty big difference if you dive into the data a little further it's it's just clear that these changes started they took some time but they started to take shape and as AJ Hinch says at the end of this story we're not even full throttle yet with what we can do here but I like the foundation we're building and he also said like the goal was to get the pitching right um given that was sort of what this rebuild that's the roots of this rebuild is young pitching prospects. So making that higher, I, I was driving to work today and I was thinking, you know, Mike Martz made Mark Bolger a pro bowl quarterback. Uh, what's the best, what's the best reclamation reclamation project or pet project or most impressive project that, uh, Chris Fetter has taken on. And, and look, none of this means there's a finality to it, but like, is it Jimenez? Is it Funkhauser? Is it Fulmer in the bullpen? Is it like convincing young pitchers to put their pride away and like sort of like abandon a pitch that just ain't working for them? Like, what do you, either a person or a thing, what do you think so far has been his best uh, tangible result? Yeah, it's it's a little tough to say because I think the bullpen guys kind of show the best the best turnarounds, but life in the bullpen is also so fickle that by the time this podcast published. You know, who knows how Kyle Funkhauser is going to be doing in a couple more days. Man, I might point to toward Kyle Funkhauser, though. This was a guy who I said in spring training, like, he's just not getting it done. He was throwing 91-92. He didn't look comfortable. But I wouldn't want to let him go to another organization. I wouldn't want the Tampa Bay Rays to get a hold of Kyle Funkhauser because he has some really good stuff. You look now, Funkhauser, you know, kind of came up as just roster depth, and he has a 2.13 ERA. His pitch usage has been um, a little bit different than it was in a short stint in the majors last year. I think that's a good example of something else the organization needs to do more of, which is unlock, you know, the talent that is there and some of these guys really bring it to the surface. You could say the same with, with Joe Jimenez, who seems to finally be getting uh, the hang of things a little bit. If you want like the type of player development victories this organization needs, I think Kyle Funkhauser, at least for the moment, is a is a very good example. And Jose Urania, right? Like that. Oh, sure. I mean, that's that's yeah. uh, basically everything I said about Robbie. It's a little bit different, but it's in the same ballpark as what I was talking about with Grossman, where it's a veteran, it's a guy who knows how to play at the major league level on a consistent basis. Maybe there are some holes here or there. But you, it, but it's another example of a smart signing. And if he had been struggling the past couple of years, and he's a formidable pitcher, I mean, it's hard not to give Fetter and his staff, you know, credit. And unfortunately, Urania's on the uh, on the IL. But I've I've been impressed with him for, and as we've talked about on this podcast, I've been impressed with him for a while. Yeah, and of course, shout out Juan Nieves, the assistant pitching coach, who yes, probably mad he's he doesn't get in the headlines a little bit more. Uh, I don't think he's actually mad once. I talked to him a little bit. He's a good guy, but come come up from Toledo, you know, uh, Coach Urena with the Marlins. Um, a little bit of a old school is not the right word, but maybe a more traditional view of the game than Fetter, although he still does use data too. It seems like those two guys have have complemented each other quite well. Well, let me ask you this, uh, and you did touch on it 
in the story. So if you want more on this, you know, be an athletic subscriber and you can read all this. But w- define the assistant pitching coach role. Like what what does that mean typically and and specifically for this staff? Like what is it? How are they sort of balancing everything and and you know producing these results? Yeah, I think at the time, uh, you know, word of all this came out, it was interesting that Juan Nieves' title was assistant pitching coach, not bullpen coach. Typically, you have a bullpen coach who sits in the bullpen, kind of manages um, your relievers. Used to be Jeff Pico, who I think was a former pitcher, did a good job. There's even been like former catchers who were sometimes the, the bullpen coach. Juan Nieves is more than a bench coach or a, a bullpen coach, at least the way it was explained at the time is basically saying he and Fetter are going to work in tandem, balance uh, Fetter's knowledge of, of data with Nieves's experience, balance Fetter's relationship with Nieves's just, you know, intricate knowledge of the game. Um, you know, they, I'm sure both these guys, uh, Nieves being a Spanish speaker is a huge thing. You know, he's probably able to relay information to guys like Jose Cisnero or Gregory Soto in um, a little more of a natural manner than um, than a pitching coach who doesn't speak Spanish. So it seems like they work very closely in tandem, collaborate on pretty much every decision. It's a little tougher to know how that's actually working, given uh, given assistant coaches are off limits to the media and all that. But again, if, when you talk to the players, most of them end up mentioning uh, Juan Nieves too. I know Daniel Norris kind of made a point of of mentioning Juan. And so it's an interesting setup. It's a little bit of a you know, non-traditional progressive uh, coaching decision, which AJ Hinch talked about when he got the job, and, and we're starting to see it pay off a little bit. We've mentioned him a couple of times here today, and we haven't spent a whole lot of time on him in a while. Uh, I'll just ask this simply, what is Daniel Norris right now? Like, he, he was really struggling there for a bit. Had a good outing recently. Uh, encouraged, uh, I wouldn't say good encouraging is how I would describe it uh outing recently against the Yankees and you know we talked about I my bold prediction was he'd be a a starter again that doesn't look like it's gonna happen uh you had written a story about this is a probably a guy that gets dealt just because of the contract situation and and all that stuff so what is the state of Daniel Norris yeah I think Norris is kind of the one guy on this staff who um, has underachieved and hasn't really, you know, who showed good stuff in spring training and has not carried it over to the regular season. His Until this outing against New York, his fastball velocity had been way down, which I know is tough on Daniel. He talked before the season. He finally felt healthy. His fastball was up, you know, back around 94. You know, he thought that was going to make his changeup better. And then the regular season came, and he was 90, 91, 92, I asked Daniel about that recently, you know, I was like, do you, do you know why your velo's down? And he was like, no, I have no idea. I've been dumbfounded about it for six or seven weeks. So I know that's been frustrating. It seems like as a result, his slider, his changeup weren't quite as sharp as we've seen at times. They've looked better recently, which was encouraging. But AJ Hinch also talked about how Norris was going to be used as a weapon. Well, Norris hasn't quite performed. And I think as a result of that, we haven't really seen him used in this weapon role he's kind of become a glorified situational lefty uh, which I do wonder you know is that impacting his performance too I think that's probably not the the best role for Norris's stuff to shine to give him a little bit of longer outings 
might be more the way to go. So his usage has been decreased or he's had to come on, come in with runners on, or he's had to come in and, and uh, face three batters and then out. So I think that's been an adjustment for him too. He's had to kind of adjust how he works in the weight room to be able to pitch at a moment's notice, even like out of the bullpen last year. Um, you know, he was coming in in three inning bursts. It was scheduled. He knew when he was going to throw. It's been a lot different for Daniel. I think it's good to see some encouraging signs from him recently. Uh, but it doesn't look like his trade value is going to be super high at the deadline. And it, I, and to be honest, he's going to have to, you know, get it together a little more consistently to, uh, to remain an option in this bullpen. I think he will. I think we've seen the stuff it's there, but it's, it's definitely been a puzzling start. He's one of those guys where we're still waiting for it to come together. So speaking of the deadline, I was, uh, reading, I was perusing articles not written by you on The Athletic, which that's one of the great things about an athletic athletic subscription. That's how you actually educate yourself, by the way. One of the great things about a subscription to The Athletic is you get to read everything that that site has to offer. So I was reading Ken Rothenthal's, uh, just his latest sort of like MLB points or whatever article, and he mentioned that Deadline activity is going to be a little bit different this year because the draft is pushed back and, you know, they expect moves to be made earlier uh, than just waiting to the end of July or whatever. So I thought we'd maybe talk about a little bit Tigers trade deadline, some hypotheticals, some what's sort of the best mode to go about. And I'll start with me. When I go to a grocery store, I, the first thing I do is I go to the discount meat section because I love me some steak, I love me some barbecue, and I want to find good value. And tell me you don't go straight to the vegetables. I, I'm not really sure where they are in the grocery store, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, I certainly don't know what they're called, so if my fiance says she needs like this type of lettuce, I don't. I don't know what what any of that means. Uh, So I go to the meat section. I look for the deals or the discounted uh, meats. And I think the Tigers have an opportunity to buy low in certain instances because you would think a team rebuilding, they'd be sell, 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 right? Write it down right here. Kieran Steckley's calling the Detroit Tigers buyers. Yes, please. Uh, All the blogs. Detroit... (laughs) Turning the corner podcast, Tigers should be buyers. <laughs> but you know, there's a, there's a good amount of guys that people anticipate will get moved, and so it's deeper than what I would normally consider would be the hot names of a trade deadline. And I think maybe you could set yourself up uh, to get somebody that you could envision being a part of your team. So I'm not really talking about like Trevor Story or Chris Bryant because. The risk there with them being rentals, the asking price is going to be high. Although maybe not for Trevor Story, uh, given uh, the turmoil in the front office in, in in Colorado. Maybe maybe you could get away with offering Parker Meadows and. Uh, <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> but wouldn't that it, be nice? it would be nice? But I I kind of I wouldn't mind Al getting a little aggressive. Not selling the farm literally figuratively but getting a little aggressive and at the very least i'm not in favor of being like 
you know, gotta gotta sell, sell, sell. So the two names that are popular for the Tigers to trade in terms of rumors and speculation would be Matthew Boyd, as steady a pitcher uh, as they come right now, and Spencer Turnbull. That we've talked about it before. We talked about it after his no hitter. He's got team control for like what four years, for uh, like, like yeah, four or five yeah. years, something. Three, three. Yeah, I mean, years, a so. long time, and. So, with Boyd, not that's not the case. Uh, what is it? He's got one more year of team control. Is that what it is? Yeah, look that up real quick. Or I'll look that up. I'll look that up. I, I believe that. Yeah, right. he's got one more year of team control. And how much of a return are you going to get given how he's pitched previous years? I don't know. That That's up in the air. I wouldn't mind going after like a Joey Gallo, Cody. A, a guy that has uh, one more year of team control. He's very affordable right now. The Rangers, we're not really sure where they're at in terms of their organizational timeline. He's 27, so if they view themselves like way far away, that could play a factor. And he's getting... I, I read a, an article that had him as like the 20th available player. So you're not giving up the phone. You're not having to like give up Riley Green for him, which obviously that'd be untouchable. I kind of, I, I, I think Al should pick up the phone a couple times, maybe call Texas and say like, hey, what do you want for? Because he's still striking out a lot. His like, there's a lot, there's enough numbers there that you could di- diminish the asking price when the when when you talk to the Rangers. So, what do you think? Am I nuts? Uh, yeah, yeah, you're nuts. Unfortunately. <laughs> It's a fun idea. It's something I would do if I were playing MLB The Show. Uh, but I think the reality is, let's see, Gallo. I think the reality is Gallo, he's a free agent, you know, in 2023. So you're getting him, um, you know, you're getting him this year and you're getting him for 2022. Gallo was... You know, was a three-win player in 2019. He's worth 0.9 wins right now, which is which is uh, on par with Robbie Grossman. He still has a 360 OBP, nine homers. Although he does strike out a lot, there's not a guy who's going to come cheap by any means. I think if if there was a world in which the Tigers had been more aggressive this offseason and spent a little more aggressively and had a couple more bats maybe you could argue, hey, if you're playing well, you know, into July, you add a Gallo, really a move that would be for 2022 to like try to be legit contenders in 2022, maybe you could make that argument. The reality is of the situation is that the Tigers are not contenders this year. Uh, they'll hopefully be improved, but probably not going to be playoff contenders next year so then you would still be trading assets for a guy who could just walk in free agency um whereas if you really want gallo in 2023 i would just sign him as a free agent in 2023 rather than whether you're trading prospects you like or not i don't think uh, it's worth allocating any assets when you're not quite ready to compete yet yeah and i guess i would look at it like i would make that trade with the intention to re-sign him uh I mean, if the guy's interested in re-signing with Texas, like, then you could sell him on a Tiger's vision. Like, I, you know, it, 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 this is all speculative, but, like, 
you know, like there's there's reason to there's things that you could sell them on with the tie sell them on with the tigers and you would have more time as opposed to like that's why I, I didn't mention any rentals like like you would have more time to sell them on that so that's just that's just an idea i had but so let me ask you this what's the mind what should the front office mindset be as we get to uh june and july yeah, unfortunately, I think we're in for another case where the Tigers might not have a ton of options because I don't really think you can quite justify buying, but you are getting closer to competing. You probably shouldn't just continue to have these fire sales. Like if you get a good offer for Boyd, okay, but it's going to be so easy for teams to attempt to devalue Boyd and his ERA has been in the sevens over his past four starts. Um, you know, some of those balls in play are starting to fall. The home run ball is ticked back up. You're just going to have a tough time getting the, the type of bat you want for Boyd, I think. Um, I, I, in the past, had stated if Jamer Candelario is hitting well, you should sell high on Jamer Candelario. I think I'm going to have to retract that statement because Jamer Candelario has become your most consistent bat. What you need right now is consistent Major League bats. So why would you trade one if you think you have one? That would still depend, like, how does the front office really view Candelario? Uh, but Candelario's, you know, under team control. I don't think he's a free agent until 2024. Like, you have a lot more Jamer Candelario left. It would be tough to justify selling a bat who is producing for you at the MLB level. So then you go back to trading pitching. And I think the two guys who might be the most intriguing and who could net you a decent return are Spencer Turnbull and Michael Fulmer. Uh, trading Turnbull is a, it's very much probably like Boyd in 2019. Like this is a young guy, he's under team control. You know, do you really want to trade someone who could be a part of your future rotation? You would have to get a good return. I think if you're going to trade Turnbull, it needs to be a pretty big deal. Maybe you package him with someone else and you get like a legit young bat that's close to MLB ready in return, if not already MLB ready. Um, that's a difficult deal, you know. That's the type of deal, let's be honest, Alavila does not have a great record of pulling off. I think Fulmer might end up being your most tradable guy because although he's really been fun to watch, he's kind of turning into this back-end leverage bullpen arm. I think some other teams will really like him. He has a little bit of control left. Um, I think he might be the guy you could kind of flip at the lowest risk right now, and I know there are some teams around the league that are indeed interested in Fulmer. It'd be cool if Daniel Norris could have a good June, July, you know, and, and work his way into some of these talks. Um, but I think at the end of the day, if you're going to get anything worth a decent return, it's going to have to, you're going to have to sell your higher end pitchers and that comes with risk involved. And, and so that's why it'll be another tricky trade deadline here for the Tigers. Yeah. And you know, the elephant in the room is Al's history um, the J.D. Martinez trade, I remember when it happened, uh, it was early. We talked about early deadline deals. That was uh, before the deadline, and, and he justified it as J.D. was kind of in and out of some, you know, knick-knack injuries, and so he wanted to get as good a return without the about risking getting something less because J.D. was hurt. Uh None of those prospects, I believe, are in the system now. 
Uh, well, Lugo's gone. Jose King. Okay, okay, Jose King, but Alcantara. Is it Alcantara? Uh, Alcantara. Alcantara. Um, yeah, it's, I think it was just activated with the Cubs. He's yeah. no longer in the organization. And uh, didn't get a whole lot for Nick Castellanos. Uh yeah, although Alex Lang's starting to look that's like fair. a little better option. I think I think a, a criticism that's almost not brought up enough in the Avila scope is like this team would look really good right now if you had Nick. I was gonna say that. I mean uh, it, it's kind of a shame. It's kind of a shame really looking back. Uh how much of it was fixable, how much of it wasn't. Nick was uh not afraid to kind of say his feelings. Uh, and it was a really bad time for the team. I don't know how seriously he was like, like, did he have, and this doesn't sound like, I'm not trying to make this a criticism. Did he have bad intentions going into negotiating with the Tigers? Like, cause sometimes players will like ask for something that they know the team won't give them. Yeah, but I think it's because the Tigers had already kind of soured that relationship. In the sure, yeah, seventeen absolutely. They they said uh, they had offered him a contract extension. Nick Castellanos says that that was not true. His mother even tweeted about it recently this past week, and he he's said this on the record to me before. Uh, so that that and then they had been trying to trade him for two off seasons. So the relationship was so frayed. Yeah, yeah. Plus the jerking of his positions, like his entire like I don't blame him at all. Like the the relationship was probably long soured. Yes, that's uh, very true. But you know, it's a shame, really, because I mean, how fun would he be? As you said, um, maybe he just didn't like America Park. That's that's kind of fair. He was also on the record as saying uh, horse s ballpark. Man. Yes, yes. <laughs> so I mean, and I and I get it. I get it. Um, so that is a shame, but. Maybe the deadline will also tell us what kind of job security Al believes he has because uh, we believe he was he was given a contract extension, right? Or was that rumored? Um, yeah, he was given a contract extension in uh, 2019. The it was never announced for how long. Uh, I have a idea of how long it was but i'm not going to put it out there as official reporting but yeah he, he received a contract extension in 2019 and that deal is is not going to be up okay so and i also kind of thought that like if you i have i have this general rule of thumb like if you hire someone to do a job and they have a vision and it's incomplete and there's not some sort of like personality thing going on that's like, you know, that causes a rift in an organization. I kind of believe you should like let that person like see their vision through. So like with Al, you have the pitching, you have some of the young bats in the minor league system that approach. I know that's not a very popular take, but that's generally what I feel like good organizations do. Like good, well-run organizations don't have high turnover with managers and GMs, right? So... I would like to see his vision played out. And if it fails, it fails. Like, you know, you, you kind of live with the results. But I, I I don't really believe in, like, you know, changing horses mid-race, you know. And so I would like to see his vision carried out. That's not to say that his moves have proven to be, you know, good. A lot of the times they have fallen flat. But that's – but 
that's part of it. Every GM has black marks. I think when you're so focused on a specific team, you tend to like only like uh, like every GM has the equivalent of the JD Martinez trade on their resume. So so I just think that I would like to I like I said I like to see it through, but if he is what depending on the moves he makes, that might determine like what Chris Illich like views as Al being like the head of the organization. Yeah, I definitely think it's it's an important trade deadline for him just as as they all are. Um as I've always said, I think the the biggest most defining moves of the Avila tenure are still to come. I think you wish the trade record were better. I think you wish you had one or two more already established pieces at the MLB level, but ultimately the biggest moves are still to come post uh, 2019 trade deadline where you move Green and Castellanos for probably not a great return. Uh, his track record is starting to look quite a, a quite a quite a bit better. We talked about um, Grossman and Urania already. Um, Julio Tehran obviously didn't work out. He was hurt. Wilson Ramos has been injured, but got a couple quality free agent signings. I think you hired AJ Hinch. I think AJ Hinch has a lot of say with what's going on in the organization right now. Um, so yeah, I think the conversation, like obviously everyone wanted, everyone wanted Al fired a month ago, and uh, the Tigers are coming off their and twelve yeah. months ago, and yeah. fifteen months and, ago, and, yeah. and twenty four yeah. well, months people ago. People still do, and, and maybe they're ultimately right. I would say if you know a vision is not working, you know uh, why would you let the ship go down if you could still toss some water out of the ship? But that's not really the conversation we are uh, we are having here on today's podcast. So. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, Al's going to be running this thing at the trade deadline this year, and he's going to have some more moves to make. And if you really want to get it right, and you really want to be the guy who sees this to fruition, um, you know, you probably can't get it wrong this time around. I just want the record to state that um, before the season, we did a podcast where I said I wanted the Tigers to draft a bat, and it's looking like that's a very real possibility. And I got a lot of pushback from you and people on Twitter. Maybe something similar will happen with the Gallo. Starting, starting to think now it's looking like they might take an arm again. <laughs> Everyone's on Marcelo Mayer. The secret is out. He might go one or two. He might, might, I don't know. The draft is very much in flux too from what we thought it was, which is a reminder we sit here and we speculate and then things change. All right, we'll wrap this up, Cody, by uh, talking about your work on another podcast. I'm not jealous or anything, but... You were on uh, Pod of Fame talking about the Hall of Fame candidacy of Lou Whitaker. Now, Detroit Tigers fans are obviously very biased and are very upset that Lou Whitaker is on the Hall of Fame. The same emotion came about when Trammell was waiting forever. Uh, It doesn't seem right for one to be in without the other, but, you know, I get why Trammell's in right now. Before uh, Lou, um, you are obviously not a fan and did not grow up a fan, so you have a unbiased view of things. So, uh, what's the case for and against Lou Whitaker uh, being enshrined in Cooperstown? Yeah, it was it was fun to go on Pot of Fame and talk about this. Another one of my favorite stories since joining the Tigers beat is is about Lou Whitaker that I did. Um, in the fall of 2019 and and he's obviously a very complicated guy who really wants to get in the hall of fame all that said i mean i think the case you know when i took over this beat i was like what 
why all these people want Lou Whitaker in the Hall of Fame? Like, like you know, guy made a couple of All Star games. Like, who is he really? Because I was, you know, because he was a little bit before my era. I didn't grow up a Tigers fan. I knew who he was from like old baseball cards more than anything. Um, and then you start digging into it, and it's like, okay, although he was never. Again, I think if if we were to start this Hall of Fame thing all over, I probably would be, and I don't have a Hall of Fame vote. I got like eight more years to go before before I'll even be eligible for that. Um, I'd probably be like a small hall guy. Like you need to be elite or have made a a real cultural impact on the game in order to be fair. But that's not the reality we live in. We have again Mm -hmm. precedence in the hall. So there, what like I I don't have it in front of me anymore. But I say it on on the pot of fame. There are a bunch of other second basemen in the hall with uh, lower career war with um, kind of less, you know, less consistency than Lou Whitaker. He only received MVP votes once. He was never really at the tip top, but he was really good for, you know, 15 plus years, which is a different kind of greatness all in itself. If you want to get me fired up, let's talk about Derek Jeter, uh, who is a terrible defensive shortstop. Great defensive player. Horrible defensive shortstop, (laughs) the worst ever. Lou Whitaker, although they play different positions, Lou Whitaker has a higher career war and Derek Jeter. So if I had to boil it for one reason, he should be in the Hall of Fame. This guy has like 75 career wins above replacement. That's higher than Derek Jeter. If you look at other second basemen in the Hall, it easily qualifies him to be in the Hall of Fame. He was part of a World Series, an iconic uh, double play duo with Trammell. I think if Trammell's in there, uh, just based on their career numbers, then, then Whitaker should easily be in there as well. And we break it down in a lot more detail um, on Pod of Fame, it was a pretty fun podcast to do. Yeah, uh, I, I do agree that if we would like start all over, there'd be a lot of guys from the old era that would not be Hall of Famers just because we now know like they weren't that great. But at the time, the sample size was a lot smaller. Uh, I have like two definitions of a Hall of Famer: uh, really elite for a short amount of time, so like five-ish years, give or take, or good to really good for a long time. So, like, the football analogy would be, like, Frank Gore. Is Frank Gore yeah. is Frank Gore a Hall of Famer? He's going to retire, like, the second, third, whatever, leading rusher. Was he ever a top-four running back in the NFL? I would probably say no. I would probably say no. But he was really good for a long period of time. In my opinion, he's a Hall of Famer. There are a decent amount of people that uh, that doubt that. Calvin Johnson would be another example. Is like really elite for like a short period of time. He ended up getting in first ballot. So like that that's I think you got to Terrell Davis. Like I think you got to fulfill one of those two lanes. You got a smirk on your face. I didn't know if you were gonna. I, I just have a smirk on my face because you said really elite. Shout out former Oklahoma State men's basketball coach Travis Ford. Shout out Travis Ford. Now at St. Louis, our boy. We St. did enjoy. Louis, he's doing well there. He 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 once referred to uh, you know incoming point guard recruit as really elite, and it was like, what does that? What does really elite even mean? Uh, and in this it case, means you're really good. You know, in, in this case, it was a guy who was like a backup. Uh, so like it wasn't even a guy that was a starter or anything. That's uh, <laughs> that that's what makes that joke a little funny. So. Great work this week, Cody, on The Athletic. It's definitely worth a subscription. Um, basically provided all the material for this week's podcast. I didn't have to work too hard and prep 
and that is a huge compliment to you. Some good discussions about trade stuff, uh, trade deadline stuff, and sort of like the shaping of this franchise. It, I, I'm more intrigued now than I definitely thought I was going to be come April, so we'll take that as a positive. So be sure to subscribe on Apple or Spotify, and follow us on Twitter. He is at Cody Stavenhagen. I am at Kieran underscore Steckley. The podcast page is at Turn Corner Pod. So for Cody Stavenhagen, I am Kieran Steckley. Thank you for listening.